everyone. You're listening to Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. This is the weekly podcast where the editors at Health Affairs talk about the health policy news and stories we've been following throughout the week. But today, we have a special episode where we go inside the pages of our new December issue, which is all about lessons learned around the globe from the COVID-19 pandemic. And thanks to support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Merck Foundation, all of these articles are free to read online at healthaffairs.org. Joining me today on the podcast to talk about the issue is Margaret Saunders, our Deputy Editor for Global Health Content at Health Affairs. Now, before we dive into it, I just want to say the breadth of this issue is really notable. From Western European countries to Latin America and the Caribbean, to places like Israel, Bangladesh, the Western Pacific region, and Africa. The articles in this issue, I think, really deepen our understanding of what the governmental policy response to COVID looked like outside the U.S. and what we can learn from those experiences about things like vaccine distribution, public trust, and the way our health systems operate. So, Margaret, my first question before we get into some of the content is, why now? Um, So COVID isn't considered a global public health emergency anymore. Uh, So talk to us about why you thought it was important for health affairs to produce this issue on global lessons from COVID-19. Well, thanks, Leslie. That's a good question. There is actually a great deal of literature emerging from the global pandemic, but a lot of it is focused on improving clinical approaches and outcomes. Our interest is, of course, in the policy considerations and how decision-making under crisis can be improved. There's less literature on that, and now is the time to study it through empirical research, qualitative research, and so on. Also, in the U.S., we are less aware of how other countries handled the pandemic and what we might learn from their experience, and we must correct that. It was a global phenomenon, and there are definitely lessons the U.S. can and should learn from other countries. The issue that came out this week features 15 articles on everything from countering misinformation during the pandemic to hospital services and mental health. But today, Margaret, um, I thought we'd highlight three pieces in particular. And the first article is an article by Mark Jitt and colleagues about how different countries used epidemiological modeling during the pandemic. And, you know, we were so inundated with these projections throughout the pandemic. I think we all remember them, right? How many infections or hospitalizations might there be under this scenario or that scenario? But this paper breaks down several different kinds of modeling efforts for us and I'm just curious, what were some of the main takeaways for you? Well, um, Mark and his co-authors really um, really performs, asked some vital questions in this research, like to what extent uh, did modeling successfully inform policymakers so they could make the best decisions? And what can we learn from that experience for subsequent health crises decision-making? And it's really interesting that they have a collective experience. Mark and his co-authors are from uh, research groups in seven different countries in Europe, and they were all charged with advising their various governments on the likely impact of the pandemic and potential impact of the various interventions to control and contain the pandemic. And 
there are important messages here about the necessity of timely access to data for decision-making, benefits of collaborating between groups and between countries, and the imperative for a close working relationship between scientists, media, and policymakers. It's a very clearly written article, and it's very accessible, and it should be of interest to a wide range of people. It's definitely not a piece that is concerned with the technicalities of modeling. Uh, right. So no one should be afraid of reading this article. Yeah, I, I think it's really I think it's really approachable too. So the next article is one from Adolfo Rubenstein and co-authors. And uh, Dr. Rubenstein used to be the Minister of Health in Argentina. And the paper that he and his colleagues published in this issue focuses or, or brings together rather um, epidemiom- epidemiological modeling, which we just talked about with economic forecasting. What can you tell us about this paper? Yeah, it's really exciting because at the end of Mark Jitt's paper, he says that what we really need to do is bring together epidemiological and economic modeling. And Rubinstein and the co-authors actually do that. So um, this kind of information wasn't available during the pandemic, and it's really exciting that they've put all the work in to actually look at four countries in Latin America, um, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, and Jamaica, and examine, these These are really important countries to take it up because in Latin America, the COVID-19 death toll was the highest in the world. So they're really interested in what can we do differently next time? And they look at the... Um, epidemiological factors related to clinical and policy parameters, but they also analyze GDP loss from mobility restrictions and the reduction in working hours and the stringency of the restrictions and lockdown fatigue and how that impacted um, people's response to the pandemic. Um, And it also is the first paper I've seen to examine poverty of stringent lockdowns and the impact on gender and and income. Um, So it tackles these really tough questions about the trade-offs between how much GDP policymakers had to give up to save lives and how various economic impacts across countries might have attenuated with different decisions. Yeah, it's that question, as they say in the paper, about saving lives versus sustaining livelihoods and how do we measure that, you know, and that continues to stir up a lot of debate today. Yes, and it it does show that poverty worsened during the lockdown period. And so it's it's good to know that and to uh, now think about how do we prevent that from happening? How can we support low-income individuals during a lockdown? The last article that we'll cover today is by Ashley Fox and two researchers from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And this one's about ways to improve vaccine access and acceptance in low- and middle-income countries. And I was reading the paper, and the authors talk about something they call the twin challenge of accessibility 
and vaccine hesitancy. What do they mean by that? Well, there are really two questions here. Are the vaccines available? And if they are available, are people taking them? Are they vaccinated? And this paper is based on two different surveys, one in the Western Pacific and region and one in Africa region. And it really, um, it looks at 17 different countries. And the survey in the Western Pacific region showed that actually there there was low unmet demand for vaccination. That is, many people in the Western Pacific countries had been able to vaccinate and were, in fact, vaccinated in 2022. Whereas in Africa, um, there were low rates of vaccination and that there were different reasons for that. There was one reason was vaccine hesitancy. And they explored the reasons for vaccine hesitancy and they, they were multiple. There were concerns about uh, adverse effects of, co- of the vaccine or vaccine effectiveness, or they perceived COVID as a low uh, risk and didn't feel it was worth vaccinating. And it's great to find that information out because you can then design education and outreach programs to reach those people and convince them that they do, in fact, need a vaccine. Um, but in addition, the results show that a good number of people in these countries haven't been able to vaccinate the vac- they are willing to vaccinate, but the vaccines aren't available. And so targeted efforts are needed there to um, ensure that they receive the supply. So it's dealing with both the supply of vaccines in low and middle income countries and also the willingness to vaccinate. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. And there are some other pieces too in this issue, just as I was flipping through the talk about um, or that talk not only about vaccine availability, but also vaccine refusal and hesitancy. And I think I think those are worth checking out. And actually, if you want to hear more about this study, though, we're hosting a journal club event on December 19th for Health Affairs Insiders. So details are up on our website. And final question for you, Margaret. What is one thing you hope people will do after they read this issue? Oh, there's so many lessons <laughs> drawn and on how we can in, better inform policymakers in, for future health crises and improve our approaches in all dimensions, health, social, and economic aspects. But the main thing is it's really important to plan for and adopt changes now so that we're prepared for the next pandemic or other public health crisis. And we were in a much stronger position going forward. Yeah, well said. I think, you know, I think it's a great issue. I think the issue tackles some persistent questions about pandemic preparedness, you know, for better or worse. And of course, brings in that much needed global perspective. So thanks. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Health Affairs This Week. We're about to hit a break in our schedule. We'll be back next year with new episodes. 
But in the meantime, if you're a fan of the show, make sure you're subscribed and keep an eye out on the feeds for some other great content coming your way. And thanks again and happy new year.